It's time now for the Pulpit Hour, featuring some of God's choice preachers. Stay tuned at the end of today's message for information on how you can obtain a copy of today's sermon. series here several Sundays ago on the Sunday evening services, the order of coming events, and I've tried to preach the various events and the order in which they will occur, beginning with the rapture of the church. I spent one evening on that, and then on the judgment seat of Christ, which will take place in heaven, where all believers will be judged on the basis of works and be rewarded. I think I may have spent two Sunday evenings on that because I talked about the believer's threefold judgment. And then I talked about the Antichrist and the reign of the Antichrist. I could have spent several Sunday evenings on that. I did not. The 70th week of Daniel, which is a seven-year period also known as the tribulation period, is the time when the Antichrist will reign here on earth the Antichrist will be have the same relationship to the devil that Christ has to God. Just as Christ was God in human flesh with all the power of God, so the Antichrist will be Satan in human flesh with all the power of Satan. Just as Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Antichrist is the son of perdition. He's the son of the devil. He is called the seed of Satan in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I talked about his reign on earth. And then a couple of Sunday nights ago, I went back to heaven to present another heavenly scene, which is the marriage of the Lamb. Now, if you can get this in your mind and get a mental picture of it, it'll help you. The next thing to happen is a trumpet sounding and Christ coming for the saints. We're caught up to meet the Lord in the air. On the earth, the Antichrist then is revealed according to Second Thessalonians chapter 2. And he has a successful reign of seven years on earth. During the reign of the Antichrist, while the saints are with Christ, two things will happen to the saints. Number one, they'll be judged and rewarded on the basis of their works or service. And number two, they'll be married to Christ, which is called the marriage of the Lamb. Now, that marriage is described in the first part of Revelation chapter 19, verse 7. said, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him, and he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now after the marriage of the Lamb, verse 11 begins to discuss what we call the second coming of Christ. This is a time when Jesus will actually, literally, physically, visibly, bodily come back to the earth. Remember in Acts chapter 1 and in verse 10 and 11, when Jesus ascended out of their sight and went back to heaven, 
they stood gazing into heaven. And two men in white apparel, who were angels, stood by and said, Ye men of Israel, why stand ye here gazing into heaven? This same Jesus that you see taken up from you in heaven shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go. Four or five things, it'll be the same Jesus. He's going to come in the same manner that he went away, which means he's coming back visibly, literally, and personally. If he comes back just like he went away, he's coming back to the same place from whence he left. And I don't have to guess at that, because Zechariah 14 and 4 says, In that day his feet shall stand upon the Mount of Olives, and it shall cleave in the middle. So I know where he's coming back to. He's coming back to the same place from whence he left. Now, the next verses in Revelation 19, verse 11 and following, talk about the second coming of Christ. That is, Christ coming back after the judgment seat, after the marriage of the Lamb, and coming at the close of the tribulation period for a purpose. And I want us to read these verses, and I'll try to do some expository preaching tonight. I don't know whether I can or not, but I'll try. And I'll comment as I go along. Verse 11, And I saw heaven opened. May I pause to say there's only one other time in the book of Revelation when heaven is open, and that's in chapter 4. Verse 1, After this, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. In chapter 4, heaven's open, and the saints go up to be with Christ. In chapter 19, verse 11, heaven is open, and the saints come back with Christ. That is simple as I can make it. And everything that happens between chapter 4, verse 1, and Revelation 19, 11 happens during the absence of the saints of God. Anything you read about after chapter 4, verse 1, that's happening on earth will happen on earth when you are not here. You leave in chapter 4, verse 1, and you come back in chapter 19, verse 11 and following. Keep reading, and behold a white horse. Somebody said, now, what does that white horse mean? That means a horse that stops it from black. It means a white horse. Somebody said, don't it have some symbolic meaning? No, it means a white horse. Somebody said, is Jesus going to ride a horse? That's what it says. And a white horse. Now, that's very simple. And in the Greek, that really means a white horse. And in the Hebrew, that means a white horse. And in Latin, it means a white horse. And in Georgia language, it means a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he doth judge and make war. That's interesting. When Christ comes back on the white horse at the second coming, or the revelation, he has a twofold purpose in mind. Number one, he's going to judge. And number two, he's going to make war. The war mentioned is the battle of Armageddon. Usually if you announce, I'm going to preach on the battle of Armageddon, Everybody and their brother wants to come out and hear the story of the Battle of Armageddon. There's not that much in the Bible about it. But actually, the Bible has something to say about it. I'll talk about it tonight. And he doth, he, he doth judge and make war. Verse 12. His, whoever it is, eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself, and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, his name is called the Word of God. Now, John chapter 1, verse 1 and following. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. John 1, 14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, I don't have to doubt who's riding this white horse, because His name is called the Word of God. That only applies to Jesus Christ. Verse 14, And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses. And again, may I tell you in the Greek, that is white horses. Not black horses, not brown horses, not pentos, uh, not, uh, uh, well, uh, Appaloosas. They're white horses, like Lone Ranger used to ride, not like Santo Road. They followed him upon white horses. They were clothed in fine linen. Go back to verse 8. And verse 8, The wife or the bride hath made herself ready, and she is arrayed in fine linen. The people riding these horses are clothed in fine linen. The people riding these horses are the saints of God that are called out in chapter 4, verse 1. They've been at the marriage. They've been to the judgment seat of Christ. They've been to the marriage of the Lamb. They have on their white linen, fine linen. Christ comes out on a white horse, and the saints of heaven come following him on white horses. And somebody said, would you please explain to me why God does that? No, I won't, because I don't know why. I'm not here to try to explain to you the mind of God. I'm only here to tell you what God said in this book. And when you try to explain why God's doing certain things, you're out of bounds. I just tell you what he said he's going to do. Now, you can like it or lump it. He's coming back on a white horse. You say, I don't like to ride horses. You better take some lessons. <laughs> you're going to ride a horse, like it or not, if you're a saint of God. You say, he won't throw me, will he? No, not these. They won't throw me. These are not bucking horses. You'll find them in Ezekiel, chapter 38. It's another group of horses over there. And verse 15, out of his mouth, not out of their mouth, the saints are following. They're called an army here. Out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. Underline the word nation. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Now, after the battle's over, Christ will then take his place on David's throne, establish a worldwide kingdom, of which there'll never be an end, and he'll rule the nations with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's Jesus. The Bible said, God hath also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That is the name of Jesus, every knee, kings and lords. Every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, when he comes back on the white horse and the armies of heaven follow him on white horses, out of his mouth goes a sharp two-edged sword, and with it he smites the nations of the earth. Now look at verse 17. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together under the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. 
after this great battle called the Battle of Armageddon, there'll be so many people killed that an angel will be summoned, will summon all the fowls of the air, all the buzzards and vultures together. And he'll say, I want you to clean up the earth. So many people are killed, the dead horses are laying everywhere, and dead carcasses are laying everywhere. And I want you fowl to come. The great God of heaven's made you a supper. And I want you to feast on the flesh of kings and of mighty men and of bondmen and of free men and of horses. And I want you to feed on the flesh of men, both small and great. Verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth. Now, I don't have time to comment much about that. I might tell you there'll be a final world empire made up of ten kings come together, according to Daniel 2 and according to Daniel chapter 7 and according to Revelation 17. The final world empire formed of ten kings come together, and, and here... These kings give their power and authority unto the beast, and that's who he has reference to here. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies, not an army, their armies, gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which the miracles, that is, he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and... Uh, them that worshipped his image, these both were cast alive in the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. Now, this is what we call the battle of Armageddon. It's the last great battle. Now, here's really what's going to happen. I'll try to just explain it very briefly, make two or three points, and I want to call your attention to another battle. This is the battle that takes place when Jesus Christ comes the second time at the close of the tribulation period, just preceding the millennial reign of Christ. And in this battle, all the armies of the earth are involved. You need not turn because it takes you too long to find it, but somewhere next to this passage, you ought to write Zechariah 14.2. And I'll tell you what it says in Zechariah 14.2. In fact, let me read the first three verses of Zechariah 14. If you want to find it, it's 978 in your old Schofield Bible. That's, that's the page number if you want to find Zechariah 14. And begin with verse 1. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and uh, thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. Verse 2, and here's the important verse now. For I will gather a double L. I will gather a double L. And in the Hebrew, that means all. And in the Greek, that means all. I'll gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. Now, you're going to have to remember that. That's important. Because when you look at Ezekiel 38 and 39, I'm going to call your attention to this. I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses raffled, and the women ravished, and the half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations. What nations? All nations. Verse 2. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations. What do we just read in Revelation 19? The Lord comes on a white horse. Out of his mouth goes a sharp two-edged sword, that with it he should smite the nations of the earth. Not one nation, all nations. May I tell you that when the Antichrist comes on the scene, there will be a one world or a world empire made up of ten kings or countries come together. According to Revelation, chapter 17, these kings will give their power and authority to the beast who is the Antichrist. 
and the Antichrist will have a one-world government as well as a one-world religion. Whether you believe it or not, whether you accept it or not, the time is coming when there will be no such thing as a United States Army. There is coming a time when there will be no such thing as a Russian Army. There is coming a time when there will be no such thing as a German Army or Japanese Army or our French army, or an African army, or any other kind of army. There's coming a time when there will be the United States division of the one world army. There's coming a time when there will be the German division of the one world army. There will be a Russian division of the one world army. There will be a Japanese division of the one world army. And there will be these various divisions, but it will be a one world army headed up by one great superman called the Antichrist. And he can call a shot. Now I'm going to ask you a question. You've been to Jerusalem. You've seen the map. Why in the name of common sense would anybody who had the control of a world empire like the Antichrist will have, why would anybody want to call every nation under heaven to gather against Jerusalem to battle? When anybody with any common sense knows you only need the United States Army to defeat Jerusalem. Anybody with any sense knows Russia could defeat Jerusalem. You mean he's going to call all the Russian army in? That's what it said. All nations. Don't ever forget that verse. It's a key verse. All nations shall gather against Jerusalem to battle. I can almost hear the Antichrist now giving his orders from headquarters. He said, all right. Let's have the Russian division of the One World Army come in. Now, let's get the German division of the One World Army to come in. Let's get the United States division of the One World Army to come in. Now, in your lifetime, you're going to see the world play right into the hands of the Antichrist. I'm not saying you'll be here when he comes in on the scene, but you're going to watch as leaders, national leaders, talk about the only hope of peace in the world is a One World Government. We've got to make the United Nations a success. The only way to police the armies is to get all the armies on the one head. We've got to have some way to control these armies. If not, there'll be sporadic fighting breaking out everywhere across the nation. In the name of peace, let's get everybody together and control it all. And they're playing gradually right into the hands of the Antichrist who will head up one day all the armies of the world. Why would he want the Russian army, and the Japanese army, and the German army, and the United States army, all gathering around Jerusalem to battle. Why would that happen? I think I know. You see, it is, the, it is Satan's desire from the very beginning since Isaiah chapter 14. It is his desire to be number one in the whole universe and have people bow down and worship him. You see, there was a time... When Satan reigned under God, he was in sort of a number two or number three position. He is one of the three angels that are named in the Bible, Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer. And Lucifer in Isaiah 14, verse 12 said, I will ascend into the clouds, above the clouds. I will be like the Most High. I'll make my throne above God's throne. You see, Satan was very ambitious. I want to be God. I don't like reigning under God. I want to be God. I'll put my throne up above God's throne. I'll be God. 
That was Satan's ambition according to Isaiah 14. And when he tried to do that, he became known as the devil as we know him today because of his rebellion. But he's never given up the idea of ruling the world. He tried it several times. He tried it when they tried to build a tower to heaven back over in Genesis. He set up his one world religion in the days of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2 or 3. When they made a golden image and everybody had to worship the same image, they, they tried to have a one world religion then. They, the Satan has been trying through the ages to get all the nations together and all the religions together, and he wants to be worshipped. And during the tribulation period, in the middle of the tribulation period, according to Second Thessalonians chapter 2, he stands in the holy place and declares that he is God and demands everybody to bow down and worship him with the penalty that if you don't worship him, your head will be taken off. Now, wait a minute, buddy. I'm not making this up. This is in the Bible. If we had hours, I'd let you turn the passage as a passage. That I just quoted is in Revelation 13. You bow down and worship me or else off comes your head. God has never given up the idea, or Satan has never given up the idea of that. He knows that God has a son called Jesus that he sent to the world. So he's copying God. He sent his son, the Antichrist, to the world. He knows the world is peace-hungry, and he knows that someday there will be a millennium of peace and the lion will lie down by the lamb. So he comes in with his son, the Antichrist, and tries to bring about a false peace before Christ comes back to bring about the real and lasting peace. And he does bring about peace for a short span of time, according to Revelation chapter 6. And then another horse comes out, and the rider has power to take away peace from the earth. When you hear peace and no fighting and everybody getting along, now, I want you to know I'm against fighting. I don't like to fight. As far as I'm concerned, I hope we never have another war. I hope another, uh, 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 not one more of young man from America goes to spend his blood on Thor and so I hope it never happens again. I'm not for fighting, but I'm not for backing up and allowing an anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-Holy Spirit, anti-Bible, communism take over the world. Either. I had rather fight than see the world go communistic. I had rather shed my blood tonight than see the world go communistic. I'm against fighting. I don't want to fight. But there are times when you ought to fight, and it's right to fight. When you defend your freedom and your liberty, it's right to go to war for causes like that. And it's an honorable death to die for a cause like that. The Antichrist is trying to get the world peace-hungry. And they've been in so many battles, let's don't fight again, let's don't fight again. And the world today is almost ready for the coming of the Antichrist. I think if he came on the scene now and brought about a great worldwide peace, he'd be swallowed up hook, line, and sinker, just like that. The world is ready for it. So he comes on the scene, and for three and a half years, the Antichrist has a successful reign. In the middle of the toward the end of the tribulation period, the Antichrist has just about achieved everything that Satan wanted to achieve. Everybody on earth almost is bowing down and worshiping him. Those that are not worshiping are having their heads cut off. He's having a heyday on earth, but Christ and his saints are up in heaven. But there's one little spot in Jerusalem that the Antichrist doesn't have. If you read Revelation chapter 11, you'll find out that there's a little spot measured off there that, that they are not to have. And there are at least two guys in Revelation 11 that hasn't bowed down to worship him yet, and as a result, they kill those guys. Some folks think those two witnesses will be 
Moses and Elijah. Some folks think they'll be Enoch and Elijah. Nobody knows who they are. I think they'll be Moses and Elijah because of what they're able to do in Revelation chapter 11. They, they perform some of the same things that Moses and Elijah performed when they were on earth. But they're witnesses, and they're murdered, and they're killed, according to Revelation chapter 11. And Satan has everything except just one or two people and a little spot of ground. And Satan is so anxious to have absolute control of everything that he calls all of his armies together. He heads up this one world government. He's over everything. So he summons his armies together to get that one little spot in Jerusalem that he doesn't have. And I can almost hear him on the radio now talking back and forth. What about you guys from Russia? Are you all about ready? Yeah, we're in coast on such and such a side, on the northern side. What about Japan and China? Yeah, we're closely on the eastern side. What about the United States uh, division of this one? We're moving in close over here on the, on the western side. And these armies, divisions of the one world army, all move in around Jerusalem. Can you imagine it? All nations gather against Jerusalem to battle. And just about the time Satan is ready to, to, give, the, to give the order, charge! And all these armies charge in to take over that little spot of ground that the Antichrist doesn't have. And he has, has absolute control. About the time they're ready to charge in and take it all over. All of a sudden, heaven opens. And a white horse comes out. And a man's riding on the white horse who's clothed in a vesture dipped in blood and crowned with many crowns. Names call the Word of God. On his thigh is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And behind him follow all the armies of heaven. I'm back there saying, Sick him, Jesus. Sick him, Jesus. Sick him, Jesus. I'm not going to do any fighting. I'm just going to watch that sword come out of his mouth. You don't see anybody on those horses shooting any bullets or swinging any clubs or getting bloody. The only fellow bloody is the fellow clothed in a vesture dipped in blood riding the first horse up front. And we're riding behind saying, Get him, Jesus. Get him, Jesus. Because we know when he cleans out around Jerusalem, he's going to take over in Jerusalem and sit out on David's throne. Amen? And here, when heaven opens up, and all these armies follow. And just about the time Satan says, say, Get him, boys, get him! Out comes a white horse, and down toward Jerusalem it comes, and out of his mouth goes the sharp two-edged sword. And with it he smites what? The nations of the earth. The nations of the earth. And down goes the Japanese division of the One World Army. And down goes the Russian division of the One World Army. And down goes the German division. And down goes the England division. And down goes the United States. And down goes the whole army. And we're sitting back there on our white horse. Good night. Did you ever see anything like that? That sword got every one of them. Things are a mess around Jerusalem. And here's where the Lord's going to reign on David's throne. we gotta, we got to get out here and bury a lot of dead people for it would be fit to live here. And so the Lord says, I'll tell you what, don't get your hands dirty on that crummy bunch. You find that in the original Greek? He said, I'll take care of that. Hey, you angels standing over there in the sun. Me, Lord? Yeah, angels always obey. They never have company visiting where they can't do what the Lord wants them to do. They never get tired. He said, hey, you angel over there in the sun. Yeah, what, me? He said, go out there and get all the buzzers. Find that buzzer in the original Greek. Get all the buzzers together and tell them they go, the Lord has made a big supper for them. I want you to eat up this Japanese division of the one world order and eat the horses and clean this place up. I'm, my saints are waiting around now. We're going to take Jerusalem over. 
I'm getting blessed by my own preaching tonight. I don't have an outline. I'm trying it extemporaneous again tonight. It's working good. So down they come, and they eat all the flesh of the mighty men and the great men and the captains, and them that sat upon the horses and they eat the horse and clean the place up. And after that, verse 20, turn back to Revelation, if you will, please. After that, let me show you what happened. Actually, cleans it up. Now, that's all the battle of Armageddon is. Not much of a battle to it, is it? Going to be a lot of folk killed, but nobody's going to do any fighting much except the man on the first white horse and the sword goes out of mouth and gets them all. Amen? Oh, whoo! Think about it. Excuse me, please. Somebody like to turn a honeybee loose in my soul there. Wait a minute. And when these foul, verse 17, 18, and 19, when these foul come down and eat up all these carcasses, verse 20, he said, Now I've got to get rid of this Antichrist. And the beast was taken. Hallelujah. The beast was taken. They grab old Antichrist with a beard. He's got one. If not, they grab him with the horns. And they get old Antichrist, the false Christ, who thought he had the whole world in his control. And boy, just, just a few minutes ago, he, he had all his armies gathered against Jerusalem. So Christ came and intervened. And all of a sudden, he's taken, verse 20. And with him the false prophet, that's the false Holy Spirit, the anti-spirit, and with, which wrought miracles before him, and which, with which he deceived them that received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. And, those, and th- these both, I'm getting so excited I can't read, were cast alive in a lake of fire, burning with brimstone. As soon as the fowl eat up all the carcasses, then they take the, the Antichrist and the false prophet, and both of them are thrown in the lake of fire. And I imagine the saints are sitting around on their white horses. And they're saying, Woo-wee! Did you see old Antichrist get his? Man, he made everybody bow down and worship him back there three years ago in the middle of the tribulation period when he set himself up as God. But he's really getting his tonight, isn't he? Amen! And we'll have an old-fashioned Baptist, Methodist, Pentecostal running fit. Amen? Our horses might get away we'll get so excited. Wouldn't doubt if they didn't. Amen? And what happened? And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse. The few that were left that didn't go down when the sword out of his mouth, he got the rest of them. That sweet little meek Jesus doing that. That's kind little Jesus wrapped up in swaddling clothes doing all that stuff. You say, you really? Yeah. He kills them. He murders them with a sword. Now, he's a loving God, but he's also a just God. And he murders them with a sword. And the sword proceeds out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. And the buzzards sat around. You say, where are you getting all that out of your Bible? Ain't you looking? Amen. You say, I didn't know that's going to happen. Yeah, a lot more than that's going to happen. And notice what happens in verse 20, chapter 20 then. As soon as the buzzards get full and the horses get eat up, and the Lord kills everybody supposed to him in chapter 20. Now, in verse 20 of chapter 19, he gets the Antichrist and the anti-Holy Spirit, and they're thrown in the lake of fire. And in chapter 20, verse 1, after the buzzards are still full up, then what happened? Verse 1 of chapter 20, I saw an angel come down from heaven. Now you angel, come on down here. That's that angel with a big chain in your hand. Come down here. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. Can you see it? Swinging the keys like a jailer on one arm. Dragging a great big chain in the other hand. I say, whoa, where's he going? He's had somebody. He sure is. Hallelujah. He's had somebody. <laughs> Verse 2, And he laid hold 
He laid hold on that old dragon, the serpent, which is the devil and Satan. Now, if you don't know who that is, that's the devil. Sure did describe him good. The old dragon, the devil, and Satan. He laid hold. That in Georgia language means he grabbed him. He just reached over and grabbed him by the collar and growled at the devil. And the devil thought he was somebody. He had sent his antichrist down, his false prophet down, and he had him down here about ready to take the world over. I should say he sent him up. And he had him about ready to take the world. And now they're gone and his armies are gone. And God's getting ready to take his place on David's throne and bring about a millennium of peace. He done got rid of the armies of the, uh, of the, of the Antichrist. He's got rid of the Antichrist and the false prophet. And now an angel comes down with a chain in his hand and a key in the other hand to the bottomless pit. And he lays hold on that old dragon, the serpent. I want to park there a minute. Can't you see him now laying hold on him? I'm going to tell you something. Not all angels have the same power. Because in Daniel 10, there was one angel that left heaven to bring an answer to Daniel and took him three weeks to get there with an answer to the prayer because one of Satan's angels stopped him in the lower denser atmosphere and God had to dispatch a more powerful angel to help that angel get through with the message. But here is one angel who's strong enough single-handedly without any help to get old smutty face. Amen. He reaches out and he grabs him! He laid hold on him, and he bound him a thousand years. I can see him now grabbing the devil and throwing his arm up behind him in a hammerlock or a half Nelson. What do you call that? You call that putting his arm up behind his back. And he held it up there, and he took the chain and began to wrap the devil up like a Christmas tree. I bet the devil's face turns red, don't you? He thought he was somebody, didn't he? That's the same guy that makes you get mad and cuss. Same guy makes you get mad and lose your temper. Same guy that's made it so hard for you to be a Christian and live right. Same guy that makes you want to be dishonest. Same guy that gave you all of this. Just makes you want to throw in the white towel as a Christian and quit. Don't quit, man. Hang on to this day. Hang on till the, till, the, till the angel grabs him and wraps him up with a chain. You say, what does that mean? That means one angel from heaven comes down, grabs a hold of the devil, and ties him up in a chain. That's what it means. And knows what it does. And he binds him for a thousand years and casts him in the bottomless pit. Boy, he just grabbed that. He tied on that chain. <laughs> Devil, we're going to lock you up. Your sentence for troubling the world is a thousand years of incarceration. You know, I knew that word. Did. In eternity's jailhouse. And he throws him in eternity's jailhouse, and look what he happens. And he set a seal up on him. He just throwed a seal over the door, the bottomless pit. That he should deceive. That's all he's been doing since he's been the devil. Deceive, be not deceived. And that he should deceive the nations no more. Till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that he must be loosed a little season. And then in the chapter 20 verse 4 and following, those who had been killed during the tribulation period are resurrected and they live and reign with Christ and Christ sets up his, most, uh, his own earthly kingdom. And so on in verse 7. After the thousand years are finished, Satan's left out of that bottomless pit. Now, I know some people say we today are binding Satan as we preach the gospel. That is not what the Bible says. The Bible said an angel comes down with a chain in his hand. You know what I believe? I believe an angel comes down with a chain in his hand. You say, well, that's not what it means. Well, that's God's fault. When I get to heaven, I'll tell God he ought to say what he meant. He said, here, an angel's coming down with a chain in his hand. 
You say, well, it's mistranslated. Well, that's not my fault. I didn't translate it. I'll tell God I didn't translate it. I just read what somebody else translated. You know what it means? It means what it says. Satan's going to be wrapped up in a chain, thrown in the bottom of his pit, and set a seal upon him, and he's going to stay there for a thousand years. And it's strange how people come to all this stuff and they try to make it mean something it doesn't say. They'll say, now, a thousand years doesn't mean a thousand years. It means something else. No, it means a thousand years. It means a thousand years. I told somebody one time that Christ was going to reign a thousand years. They misunderstood me and thought I said it was going to reign a thousand years. They said I had a hard time believing it rained 40 days and nights in the flood. And I just don't believe it's going to rain a thousand years. I said, oh, you dumb thing, it's not R-A-I-N, it's... It's not R-E-I-N, it's... It's not rain like water out of the sky. It's not rain like a horse's rain. It's rain like sitting on the throne rain. I'll tie you up and throw you in there tonight. There is a first and second calamity that says, Thou shalt not laugh at the preacher. Now, that's the battle of Armageddon. That's all it is. But I'm going to tell you something. I think it ought to take time. Oh, I shouldn't need it. This battle is not to be confused with the Ezekiel 38 and 39 battle. And I'm going to contradict a lot of people. And I don't know who. I may contradict all y'all. But I ain't going to contradict the Bible. Turn to Ezekiel 38 right quick. Ezekiel 38 and 39 is not to be confused with the battle of Armageddon. It is not the battle of Armageddon. I'll show you why. It is very simple. You'll see it. I'll give you two reasons why it's not in a minute. Ezekiel 38, verse 1. And here is a very interesting chapter. You ought to read Ezekiel 38 and 39 with your Schofield footnotes. And keep in mind that when Schofield wrote these and put these footnotes down here, Russia was not a significant power. And Israel wasn't even a nation. And yet he's talking about Russia invading Israel when Russia was nothing to be even considered and, nation, and Israel wasn't even a nation. That goes to show you how true the Bible is. Now let's begin reading. You want to take a few more minutes for this, don't you? Ezekiel 38, verse 1, And the word of the Lord. Now this is not what the Baptists think, and this is not what the Presbyterians think. This is what the Lord said. You say, oh, that's Ezekiel's opinion. No, this is the word of the Lord. Get it, man. The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him. Go down to your footnotes in your old Schofield Bible. Look down about the third line, the fourth word from the end. On the right-hand side it says, Gog is the prince, Magog is his land. The reference of Meshach and Tubal is Moscow and Tobolsk. Russia and the northern powers have been the latest persecutors to disperse Israel. That was at that particular time. Now here he, he identifies Meshach and Tubal as Moscow and Tobolsk and calls two Russian cities by name in Ezekiel 38 before Russia was a significant power. Keep reading. And say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O God, that's the chief prince of Meshach, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, Moscow and Tobolsk. And I will turn thee back and put hooks into thy jaw, and I will bring thee forth and all thine army, horses and horsemen, 
all of them clothed with all sorts of armor, even a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them ha- handling swords. Persia, right out beside Persia, Ar- Iran, that's what it is now, Ethiopia and Libya with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer, right out beside Gomer, Germany. You know, I, I-, I think Germany will have to be reunited because I don't see how half of Germany can side up with Russia when they attack Israel when the Bible says the whole nation will. Let's just throw that in for you. I think it'll be reunited. I don't know how to do it, but I just think it will. Based on verse 6 of Ezekiel 38, Germany, Gomer, Germany, and all his bands, the house of Togarmouth, which is Turkey, by the way, might that out, and the north quarters, and all his bands, and many people with thee. Be thou prepared, and prepare for thyself, thou and all thy company that are assembled under thee, and be thou a guard under them. Now, there's going to be a northern confederacy that will confederate with Russia when Russia comes down on the land, uh, uh, the Holy Land. Keep reading. Verse 8, After many days thou shalt be visited, and the latter years thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword, talking about Israel, and is gathered out of many people against the mountains of Israel. And he calls it by name. Now, who's coming down? This northern confederation, Persia, Ethiopia, Libya, Gomer, and all these others mentioned up here with many other people, verse 6 says. They are to come down against the mountains of Israel, which have been always waste, but is brought forth out of the nation, and they shall dwell safely in them. Israel will be, uh, make a note of this, Israel will be dwelling safely in their land whenever Russia comes down. Keep reading. Thou shalt ascend and come like a storm. Thou shalt be like a cloud to cover the land, thou and all thy bands and many people with thee. Thus saith the Lord God, it shall also come to pass that at that same time shall things come into thy mind, and thou shalt think an evil thought. And thou shalt say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. Number two, they're dwelling in peace and safety, back in verse 8. Number 11, they're living in unwalled villages. I will go to them that are at rest. Number three, they are at rest in Jerusalem. And that dwell safely. Number four, they dwell safely. All of them dwelling without walls. They're so safe that they take down their walls to protect their cities. And having neither bars nor gates. Now, while they come down, verse 12, to take a spoil. Now, I don't have time to preach this whole chapter. Russia and the nations that side with Russia when they attacked Israel are coming for one reason, to take a spoil. Now, I have been told that if Russia were to take Israel, it would mean a great psychological victory because Israel is the home of the great religions of the world, Christianity and Judaism. I've also been told that since Israel is the center of the world geographically, it would make the best military base of any place in the world. And I've been told, thirdly, that the Dead Sea is estimated to contain $1,270,000,000 worth of minerals. It has enough potassium to fertilize the lands of the world for several centuries in the Dead Sea. Now, I do know that verse 12 says to take a spoil, so it must have reference to some of the wealth that's there in that particular country, and to take a prey and to turn thine hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited and upon the people that are gathered out of the nations which have gotten cattle and goods and dwell in the midst of the land. Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish, with all the young lions thereof, shall say unto thee, Art thou come to take a spoil? Hast thou gathered thy company to take a prey, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, 
to take a great spoil. Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say unto God, that's the prince of the people, Thus saith the Lord God in that day when my people of Israel dwelleth in safety, dwelleth safely, safely. Again, it says they're dwelling safely. Thou shalt not know it. Shalt thou not know it. Now, we know that it's Russia because of the names used in the first few verses. We know that it's Russia, number two, because of the direction from whence they come. If you get a map and lay it down and put your finger on Jerusalem and go directly north, you'll run into Russia. It comes, they come from the north parts. Thou and many people with thee, that is those who, who side with Russia. That's the northern confederacy. Now keep reading. All of them riding upon horses in a great company and a mighty army, and thou shalt come against my people of Israel. No doubt about who they are attacking. They're attacking Israel. As a cloud to cover the land, it shall be in the latter days. And I will bring thee against my land, and the heathen may know me, when I shall sanctify in thee, O God, before their eyes. Thus saith the Lord, God art thou, he of whom I have spoken in old times, and so forth. I'm going to stop here. I don't have time to even comment on this. <clears throat> but there are two reasons, two reasons why I say this is not the Battle of Armageddon. This is an invasion of Russia with the northern confederacy in the land of Israel. One first reason is, I say it's not the battle of Armageddon, is because all nations are not involved in this battle. Now, you either are going to have to deny Zechariah 14.2 and Amos. I don't recall the chapter and verse in Amos that says all nations. You're going to have to deny that all nations will gather against Jerusalem to battle. Or else you're going to have to say this is not the same thing as the battle of Armageddon. In the battle of Armageddon, all nations gather against Jerusalem to battle. And this invasion of Russia with their allies there is a western confederacy that issues a protest. Look back in verse 13. Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish, with the young lions thereof, shall say unto thee, Art thou come to take a spoil? Now notice that they don't fight in defense of Israel. They don't go out to battle against Russia and her allies. But they do issue a protest. That's all, just a protest. What are you doing coming down here against Israel? Did you come down here to take a spoil? They simply issue a protest, but they don't fight against Russia. Now, it is clear in this passage that you have two groups of nations, one siding with Russia that invades Israel, and another that issues a protest against Russia and our allies for invading Israel. I talked to him. Is that right or wrong? Then it can't be the Battle of Armageddon. Because in the Battle of Armageddon, all nations gather against Jerusalem to battle. Number two, this cannot be the Battle of Armageddon because the Battle of Armageddon is at the close of the tribulation period. Right or wrong? We read it from Revelation 19. It just it precedes the binding of Satan and precedes the millennial reign of Christ. Talk to me. At the close of the tribulation period, will, will Israel be dwelling in peace and safety? Talk to me. At the close of the tribulation period, will Israel be living in unwalled villages and no bars and no gates? And they'll be at rest at the close of the tribulation period? Talk to me. You're not talking much. I'm going to talk to you. Re uh, Matthew chapter 24, beginning with about verse 15. Jesus, speaking to the Jews, Israel said, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of the desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. He goes on to say, and by the way, that's when the Antichrist sets up himself as God in the middle of the tribulation period. That's when he breaks his covenant with Israel, declares himself to be God in the middle of the tribulation period and demands worldwide worship. Jesus then said to the Jews, When you see that, flee to the mountains. Pray that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. If you're on the housetop, don't come down and get anything out. And woe to them that are with infants and uh, about to give birth in those days, and those who have infant babies who are still sucklings. Pray, he said, that it won't be in the wintertime or on the Sabbath. 
For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since there was a world at this time, known or ever shall be. And except those days be shortened, no flesh should be saved. But for the elect, Israel's sake, those days will be shortened. Jesus is describing the last half of the tribulation period. Right or wrong, talk to me. The last half of the tribulation period is called the Great Tribulation. And Jesus said it'll be like hell on earth. He said it'll be so much trouble, it'll be like a man with his hands on his loins trying to give birth to a child. He said it'll be so bad in the last half of the tribulation period that men will seek death and death will flee from them. Now, if, 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 uh, if the battle of Armageddon takes place at the close of the tribulation period, when the tribulation will be at its worst, then how can you reconcile the fact that the battle in Ezekiel 38 and 39 takes place when Israel is dwelling in peace and safety? Don't you see, the battle of Ezekiel 38 and 39 cannot be the battle of Armageddon because the battle of Armageddon comes when it was having her worst time. When all nations are gathered against Jerusalem to battle. Talk to me. And Christ comes back. You mean that's peace and safety with no walled village and they're resting? And the Russian division, the one world army out here and the tanks roaring? The horses snorting. And here's the, the, the United States division. No, they're not dwelling in peace and safety at the close of the tribulation. I don't know where to stop with this. All right, thank you. I've been waiting for that for a long time. Let me say this. And write this down somewhere around Ezekiel 38 and 39. There's only one time when Israel will be dwelling in peace and safety. In my lifetime, Israel has never been dwelling in peace and safety. They're not dwelling in peace and safety tonight. They've got an army that's watching, and everybody's so afraid that a third world war will erupt in the Middle East, they don't know what to do. They're fighting constantly over there, skirmishes one after the other. The only time that Israel will dwell in peace and safety is after the Antichrist makes his covenant with the nation of Israel and before the Antichrist breaks the covenant in the middle of the tribulation period, which will be in the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. If I had time now, we'd go to Daniel 9. I'd discuss the covenant that he makes and how Israel has peace and safety. When the Antichrist makes the covenant, guaranteeing them they can restore their old form of worship, and they start worshiping like they were before, and they'll be protected in peace and safety. But once the Antichrist breaks that covenant in the middle of the tribulation period, all hell breaks out according to Jesus' own words in Matthew 24. If Russia invades Israel while they're dwelling in peace and safety, while they're at rest, while there's no bars and gates, while they're in unwalled villages and cities, they will have to invade Israel during the first three and a half years of the tribulation, my dear friend. Now here's something for you to think about. If Russia is as interested in Israel as they are tonight, and so much so that they back Israel's enemies during the Six-Day War, and they are arming the enemies of Israel, if Russia is that interested in Israel tonight, and they're going to attack Israel during the first three and a half years of the tribulation after the Antichrist makes the covenant, and follow them, if you remember the rapture sermon, and the Antichrist can't be revealed to the church's rapture, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Every time I see a news article about Russia's interest in Israel, and it looks like Russia's about to invade Israel, I'm, I'll almost come myself jumping up. Come on, Lord, get us out of here. Because if we're still here, when Russia invades Israel, we will have missed the rapture. Come on. And boy, when I read how Russia a few years ago had a fleet, had her fleet built up in the Mediterranean, I'd look at the pictures in, the, in Time magazine, some of the other, I couldn't believe it. I said, good night. I said, man, don't y'all, don't y'all get in there yet. We've got to get out before y'all can get in. You see, the Antichrist makes his covenant 
after he comes on the scene, the Antichrist can't come on the scene of the church. He's raptured according to Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Because he who letteth or hindereth will let or hindereth will he be taken out of the way and then shall that wicked be revealed. And that he is the Holy Spirit that indwells a Christian. And it's actually the presence of Christians in the world by virtue of the fact that we're indwelt with the Holy Spirit that keeps the Antichrist from being revealed. And that's point two and half of point three. I won't preach it. Look at it. Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. You get in the Bible conference here tonight. The whole Bible conference. You don't learn everything in school. You learn some things in church. Amen, 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 amen. Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. Let's keep reading, all right? We read down through verse 3 a while ago. We saw Satan tied up with a chain and thrown in the pit for a thousand years. Verse 4. And I saw thrones them that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus. That souls who were killed during the tribulation period, who would not bow down and worship the Antichrist. And for the word of God, boy, they stood for the word of God. These pussyfooters today that compromise on the word of God, I don't have any sympathy for them. These men during the tribulation period suffered martyrdom because they stand for the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast, neither had re- neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived. You know what that means? That means they were dead and come alive. That means they were resurrected. Put the word resurrected there. You say, how do you know they were dead? Well, it said in the first part of the verse, they had the head taken off. So they're dead. In the first part of the verse, and the last part of the verse, they're alive again. Folks that were murdered during the tribulation period, who would, because they wouldn't worship the beast, neither his image, because of the word of God... They live, and they reign with Christ a thousand years. That's the latter part of verse 4. That's the millennial reign. The word millennial comes from two Latin words, many, a thousand, annual years, a thousand years. That's all it means. The millennium means a thousand years. It is not a Bible word, but a thousand years is there, isn't it? While Satan's in the pit for a thousand years, the saints are reigning with God a thousand years. Verse 5, but the rest of the dead, that's the unsaved dead. Because these are saved dead, and the rest of the dead is unsaved dead. It's just simple deduction there. Keep talking. The rest of the dead live not again. In other words, they stayed dead. They didn't come back alive. They live not again until the thousand years were finished. In other words, after the thousand years, they're going to live again. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection on such a second death hath no power. But they shall be pleased of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. I can't talk about the millennium. I'll talk about it next week. Verse 7. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. Put in the pit a thousand years during the reign of Christ. When it's over, he's loosed out of the prison. What happens? He goes out to deceive the nations which are on the four quarters of the earth. He hasn't given up yet. He may have to be in the pit of a thousand years. He's still going to try to get an army together. And what happens? He gathers together from the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog. He gathers together to battle. The number of whom is as the sand of the sea. Could you imagine getting the army together like the sands of the sea after they had been on the earth under a perfect government and perfect peace for a thousand years? That knocks the hole in the head of this theory that if men have the proper environment, they'll be all right. Here are men who've been in a proper environment for a thousand years with no war, prosperity, peace, and plenty, with God Almighty reigning as king of the earth. And the bear eating straw with the ox, and the rat and the cat, don't, they get along together. You don't have any dog fights, and the cats don't even fight during the millennium. The mosquitoes don't even bite during the millennium. Red bugs don't bite during the millennium. And he gets all this army together after he comes out of the pit. And what happens? And verse 91, upon the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about in the beloved city. That's Jerusalem. He's still not through. Even after Christ comes here, takes his place on David's throne, 
been reigning in Jerusalem for a thousand years with a perfect government. Satan comes out of the pit and gets a bunch of people to follow him, and they all go up against Jerusalem. Look what happens here. This is not the battle of Armageddon. This is not the Ezekiel 38 and 39 battle. This is what I call the final rebellion of Satan. What happens to him? He compasses the camp of the saints about the beloved city, and what happens? Fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And then in verse 10, you can write across that, the end of the devil. Because God's tired of him making tries, and in verse 10 he said, The devil that deceived them was cast in the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and false prophet are. A-R-E-R. You know what that means? That means they've been there a thousand years and they're still there. So that'll shoot the seven-day Adventists in the head. That you're going to burn up. If they're going to burn up, for goodness sakes, how come they hadn't burned up after a thousand years? They're still in there. Right or wrong? This is a thousand years later. They were cast in back in chapter 19, verse 20. And a thousand years later, the Satan's cast in with them in chapter 20, verse 10. And they're tormented day and night. How long? Forever. That's an eternal burning hell, my dear friends. And then the white throne judgment, and I've got to stop. The battle of Armageddon is one battle. It's the last great battle. It will come at the close of the tribulation period. The Ezekiel 38 and 39 battle takes place during the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. This battle of what they call Gog and Magog in Revelation chapter 20 is nothing but the final rebellion of Satan. It is not even a battle. He gets his armies together, but without a shot being fired, God just rains fire down from heaven and destroys them, throws Satan in the bottom of his pit, and that's the end of him. Then the white throne judgment, and in chapter 21, the new heaven and the new earth, and in chapter 22, eternity, and whoo-wee, that'll be wonderful. Brethren, we have met to worship and adore the Lord our God. That concludes our Pulpit Hour message for today. If you would like to order a copy of today's message, you can call our studios at 828-884-9427 or write to us at WGCR 3232 Hendersonville Highway, Pisgah Forest, North Carolina, 28768. You can also hear today's message on our website at WGCR.net. The Pulpit Hour is brought to you by Anchor Broadcasting.